Okay, today is June the 28th, 2011. This coming Sunday is going to be our communion Sunday, fellowship dinner immediately following, and dedication of our new wing. This will be our fifth dedication service. <laughs> In 20 years, we've had five. Okay, um, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know our standard operating procedure. A few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are immutable. You change not. The world vacillates. It swirls around in confusion. And yet we have the solid rock. We're so thankful for that. We have your word. We have everything necessary in order to glorify you and reach spiritual maturity. So we pray that you will help us to focus this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of things that I noted, one was on the news tonight, in national cemeteries, they're still hassling over what the chaplains can say, whether they can pray in Jesus' name, and they're now talking about not allowing someone to say, God bless you. So we continue to have um, degeneracy raise its ugly head, putting God out of the picture, at least trying to. <coughs> I found this also, nothing new here. The, the headline of this says, Church's Dilemma, 80% of flock is inactive. Well, it's always been that way. It shouldn't be that way, but that's pretty much the way it is. You have 20% of the people that actually are active in the church doing what they need to do in order for... A, local church to function properly. They're utilizing their spiritual gifts. It says it doesn't matter whether it's mega-sized church, small church, black or white. It's actually run by 20% of the congregation. The other 80%, they say, tend to act like spectators. They are minimally involved and attend infrequently or not at all. It has figures here. Southern Baptist Convention had a membership of 16 million some odd in 2008. And just a little over a third actually attended the church. The Lutherans didn't fare much better. They have 4,500,000 some odd. And their yearly attendance rated around... 28%, so about one out of four that are members of Lutheran Church actively attend the churches. There was a survey, a Barna survey in 2010. 46% of the 600 senior pastors reported that outreach evangelism in the area of their church, in the area of their church, or ministry would like to develop in 2011. Well, they're talking about programs where you go out, the church goes out and tries to uh, reach people. And I don't think God designed it as programs. I think he made that incumbent upon every one of us, didn't he? That wherever you go, whoever you talk to, you are a royal ambassador. Furthermore, you represent Country Bible Church. And if you like to talk about the Word, which you should, you like to talk to people about Jesus, which you should, then that seems like it would take care of itself. People that are learning and growing, loving the Lord, learning how to execute the Christian way of life, automatically do that, or at least they should. This is a normal function of someone who is learning and growing. I don't see that there's a, a program needed. It says... Uh, only tw listen to this. Only 28% of the pastors reported that spiritual growth was an important area of development. 
You have um, even fewer pastors, 19% reported that engagement was an important area of development. I'm not, I'm not going to go into all the engagement. It's a bunch of gobbledygook. Churches are urged to create a learning team to uncover the external social and cultural dynamics in their communities, hampering members' church involvement. I don't think we need to have a, an external social and cultural dynamic team to see what's happening. I'm pretty sure it can be described as negative volition. And people are no damn good. Excuse me. But that's the truth. They, they, don't, they don't want God in their life. They're doing fine without him. And if you have enough food and enough programs, we'll come and we'll honor you with our presence for a little while. And then we'll go haunt somebody else and see what we can get from them. That's pretty much the idea. That's not in this, by the way. I'm just, that's just me. Um, the team may learn that a Sunday morning sports league is keeping church youth and their parents from service. That's something that gets under my skin. Sometimes I'll be coming to church and I'll look over in the fireman center and there's activities going on there, sometimes maybe for firemen, all types of, and in sports. And parents, this is one thing that we've been looking at in Second Thessalonians, that we are all role models. Others are watching us and learning from us. And when parents put little league ahead of going to church and the relationship with God, the children learn the lesson. And then the parents wonder what happened when they leave the nest and they have... Uh, they're, they're totally abysmally ignorant of spiritual things. Well, when they could have been in a church learning, well, they were out playing a little league baseball or something. And it would send a message to everyone. I would like to see the best pitcher in the whole league be a doctorly oriented young man with doctorly oriented parents and say unequivocally, when you have games on Sundays, we will not be there. We're going to be where we should be. We are ambassadors for Christ more than we are participants in Little League. Wouldn't that be great, somebody to do something like that? Anyway, I, I, I just, I'm opposed to any of these activities that are going on on Sundays when the churches are in their having, having church. That just uh, kind of sticks in my craw. One thing I was learning recently... You all have probably heard that in Europe, when it comes to church attendance, it is abysmally, uh, it, it's just pathetic. It, it, they're just cold, dark tombs for the most part. And I've, in my own mind, I've kind of had held that attitude that the Europeans have gone to hell in a handbasket. But then in Europe, they have state churches. And in state churches, you don't have the word being taught, the dynamics of the Holy Spirit are not there, so you can't hardly blame them for not going to churches. In fact, even in this country, I don't blame most people for going to the churches that are here because they are glorified country clubs for the most part. They have all the programs, and here we have people. Uh, this whole article was about what can we do to get the people back into the churches and to grow the churches. And they have all these potential solutions and so forth. I think I have the best idea. How about teaching doctrine? How about that? Well, no, that's boring. Nobody wants to do that anymore. But the church cannot compete with the world. There's no way that it can. And when they start getting into the program industry and they start leaving, I'm not saying that every single program is bad, but when it's elevated above teaching the Word, that has to be the focal point or the center of the church because that's the purpose of the church is to prepare the saints for spiritual combat. It's really a school more than anything else. Yes, people can get saved here. They'll hear the gospel. But that's not the purpose of the church. There's evangelism, the gift of evangelism. And we, we all, every believer, it's incumbent upon every believer to witness to people. But the church is to grow and learn and you do that by teaching the word. And I think, in fact, I just, uh, this past Friday, I went to a, 
uh, into Houston, and I was with six pastors, and they were discussing this very issue. You need to pray for the doctrinal churches. I know that I've heard some of you do that, but we need to continue to do so because there are churches that are doctrinal churches that are all but phased out. The attendance is just abhorrent. And the pastors were talking about, you know, what do you do? Do you just keep teaching until only five people show up and you finally have to close the doors or what? I don't know if you know that that is that the negative volition is to that extent. And they were somewhat taken back uh, to find out that we're going to have a dedication for our new wing next Sunday. We are extremely blessed here in every way that you can think of. We have young people. We have, overall, we were talking about, the, between us pastors, what uh, what is the ratio, what is the percentage of older people in your congregation? And most of the ch doctrinal churches, including this one, has by far a larger older population, older, older folks attending than the younger. Now, we do have young people now. There was a time that we... We prayed for young people. In fact, that's why we have a new wing is to accommodate the young people and the babies and so forth. But the question was posed, what are we going to do 10 years from now? These doctrinal pastors that are my age, most of them are about my age. There's a few younger, a few older. 10 years from now, the, the demographics is going to be much different. Many of the people that are here 10 years from now are not going to be here. And who is coming up behind them to keep the church going? That's something that we have to be cognizant of. I mean, I know that the Lord is going to take care of all these issues, but we can't just go through and just ignore the realities that we live in. So I saw I would just throw that out there for you. That, what prompted me to, to speak on this was this little article that I came across today. But... Uh, we are, we are really blessed here that we are having to add on because we're the, we're the only doctrinal church. And if I said the other pastors that were there, you would recognize all of them. And the last thing they're thinking about is adding on. They're trying to, uh, they're concerned about the, so many empty chairs. And you and I can... Do something about it by praying. We need to pray for these pastors. We need to pray for these churches, especially the pastors. I don't think any of them are going to fall for gimmicks, but there's always that strong temptation because they, as well as, as, well as I, know how to fill empty seats. I could have this, not me, but uh, that we as a church could have every seat in here filled nearly every time. But we can't do that and be faithful to God's Word. If there was enough positive volition, we could. When I went to Baraka Church back in around 1978 and 79, I think it holds around 900 people. I'm not sure. And there were classes every day except, Sunday, except uh, Saturday. And when you, when you got there, you had to really hustled to get a seat. 900 seats. There, I'm not, don't, it's, it's about, I would say it's about 900 or 1,000 people. And every night of the week, it was packed. People were sitting in what they call TV rooms and so forth. And it's not that way anymore. I don't, think, I don't know if it's that way anywhere anymore. So these are areas that we need to be, we need to acknowledge these things and pray for these churches because the the attendance at churches i'm talking about doctrinal churches is a barometer of the spiritual condition of a country and when when the we have when i was ordained in 1991 i was ordained with nine other pastors and i kept track of them for some of them probably most of them over a five-year period and there were at least a third of those pastors five years later still didn't have a church. Now, these are prepared pastors. But there was not, there was no, um, they just, there were not enough positive people to even have these pastors teaching. 
And that was five years ago. I don't know what it's like today, but I wouldn't think that it's better. I would think it was, it was even worse. But we're here. We're here to study the Word, so let's get into it. We're in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. I don't know about you, but I just love God's Word, don't you? Huh? As I go into a book and... I, I go in depth into it. I, I just keep learning more and more, and I just can't. The more I learn, the more I want. And even in Second Thessalonians, I knew that Second, Second, First and Second Thessalonians had a lot to do with prophecy, especially with regards to the rapture, the timing of the rapture. I understood a lot of that, but when you get down and you start really slowing down and looking at verse in chapter three, I have to tell you, after chapter two, I thought, well. We'll go into chapter 3, and I hate to say this, but I might as well be honest. There's not a whole lot there, but we'll, get, we'll, we'll press on. I mean, have you ever thought that about a book or something? And, and then I start, so I start teaching it, and I think, Lord, forgive me for that. I mean, that's <laughs> how audacious and silly is that? And I keep learning more and more from a, what, to me, was an innocuous Chapter, chapter 3, what's in that? Well, there's a lot there. And so let's see if we can't get into it. I'll put it up here on the board. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, and this is verse 7, the end of it. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. This is Paul speaking. He's got problems in Thessalonica. You heard how he praised the Thessalonians and how close he was to them. He calls them beloved over and over and over again. Now this tells us something that here he has a church that he's very close to and he praises them often and yet there's still problems. That's the way every church is. That's the way every family is. That's nearly every organization you have those uh, it, it, even when it's on track, it still have, they still have issues. And he's very careful the way that he and his mobile seminary, these guys that were following him, that were learning from him, he was very careful how they behaved because he knew that these were young, impressionable believers that were watching and listening and they were going to mimic. They were, he was their example. And he could not afford for any of them to get... Off course, and that's why he says, We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Uh, this undisciplined is a takteo, A T A K T E O, and it just means to be out of order, to break ranks as a soldier, and so forth. And we have, we're going to have an issue about working here. I'll tell you right now, there was, that's one of the issues in Thessalonica that Paul had to address. And he's going to tell us that he didn't work. I mean, I mean he, didn't, uh, he didn't get reimbursed. He didn't get remuneration for uh, teaching. And he, the reason he didn't is because there were slackers. There were moochers. There were people who were not working. One reason they weren't working is because they thought, well, Christ is going to come any day now. Uh, why should I worry about paying my bills because Christ is probably going to be here before the bills arrive? And so he had to, he had to, he had to address those type of issues. And we'll get into that uh, more. Um, verse 8, We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working day and night so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now this doesn't mean that Paul... And his companions never accepted a meal from someone who offered it. It means that they were not moochers. They didn't want to be a burden on anyone, but rather wanted to be an example to those who were irresponsible loafers who were leeching off of others. And so he has the right to be paid for his labor, but he didn't, in this particular case, uh, take advantage of that right. 
But with labor and hardship, we kept working day and night. Now, you have two things here. You have labor and hardship and working, uh, well, I said day and night. It's night and day. That gives you the picture that he never rested. He, was, he had a tremendous burden upon him. It is, it's tantamount to what we see in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. For you recall, brethren, that our labor and hardship, same thing you see in the verse 8 there, our, our excuse me, uh, 7, our, for our labor and hardship, how working night and day, same words there, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know, teaching itself is hard work. Any of you that have ever taught, you, you, I mean, to be a good teacher, you have to be prepared. You have to not only know your subject matter, you have to be able to, um, especially in our school systems today, you have to know how to maintain discipline. And I'm, that's extremely difficult in a system where there is essentially no discipline. But just the preparation of it, and you teach and teach, and people don't get it. It's frustrating. You get discouraged. It's just not an easy job. So it's, it's hard work in itself, and to add manual labor to it makes it a lot harder. Of course, taking on another job means more energy expenditure, which makes studying quite difficult because of fatigue or physical exhaustion. And the time element can be most detrimental. Most pastors, including me, when we first, when you, unless you take over a church of some size, smaller churches, you have to have a side job. And there was a time, I guess it was, I don't know, maybe the first three years, something like that, um, I had to have a side job because the church was not large enough to support me. And the thing that I found was one of the jobs I took, by the way, was driving a school bus and uh, being a substitute teacher. Being a substitute teacher was not easy, but driving a school bus is, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's better than going hungry. Let me put it that way. I had 75 kids on my bus, and they give you the responsibility but not the authority to carry out that responsibility. You ever wonder why they always have ads? They have ongoing ads in the newspaper for school bus drivers. It's a crummy job. You have, can you imagine 75 kids and you're trying to maneuver this big bus and they don't have seat belts in them. They're supposed to sit down. And they have a mirror about this, about this size up there that you're looking at. You can see everything. And... This was, I guess, what, I don't know, 12, 14, 15 years ago, something like that. And it was a zoo. The worst I could do is get their name and turn it in, and then maybe a week later somebody would come around and, and, and say, uh, well, you're not supposed to do that. The kids knew it. About the only thing that I had going for me was that I could give them a look in that rearview mirror. I'm going to, it was, you're toast. Now, it was a look. I couldn't, I couldn't touch him. I remember one day, little, I'm just going to call him little Johnny. Little Johnny was so bad that when I brought the bus in that evening, I went to the principal. And he said, yes, can I help you? I said, yes. I just want to let you know that tomorrow and forevermore, either Johnny or I, one, will no longer be on that bus. You can choose. It doesn't matter to me. But both of us will never ride that bus again. And as it turned out, Johnny was the one that was no longer riding it. But I was dead serious. If he said, well, we've got to have Johnny on there, I said, well, okay, I hope he can drive. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard when you have a side job. And let me tell you something. I am so thankful that I don't have to have a side job anymore. Because what it does, it's not only whether it's manual labor or whatever it is, it's time away from your job. And my job is 24-7. There's not a, 
all day long, every day, I'm still thinking about this church, about what I'm teaching, the responsibilities that I have. I don't have to go into all that. If you knew how much time I spent answering questions, for one thing, I get emails and someone can make one line. Can you tell me about so and so like this? Oh, man. You know, it might take days to put together enough information to answer that question properly. Now, I finally got smart enough. When I answer questions now, I put them in a file. And so when someone else comes and they ask me this same question, I just go to that file and I can already have it taken care of. You can't believe the questions that I get asked. You, you have to be sharp and on top of your game, and it takes 100% of the time focused on your, my calling, my, my spiritual gift, which is being a pastor. And when you have to go out and you have to earn a living elsewhere, well, your, your mind has to be on that job. can't be on both things. And it's, it's extremely difficult for pastors to have a side job and keep up with the ministry. And so when Paul was working, when he was establishing churches, and it says that he uh, labored and had hardship and he worked night and day. I want you to appreciate what he's talking about. It's very difficult to focus and be energetic when you're exhausted. And if you have another side job, often there'll be issues and things that you take home with you. You know what I'm talking about. You, you want to leave it all at work. Well, you, when you have a side job, you do your best to do that, but you can't always do that. But if you, if you don't have a side job and you can devote your entire time, all your energies to being a pastor, it is better for everyone, but especially for the pastor. Because when you're exhausted and you have these other issues and responsibilities, it just kind of seeps in when you're trying to do your job. So the time element is very important. When a Bible communicator has to have another job to support himself, it takes away from studying and other church duties and responsibilities. Let's go to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. By the way, there were two churches recorded in the Bible where Paul did not take a salary. It was in Corinth and Thessalonica for particular reasons. So we go to 1 Corinthians. Well, he's going to talk about Corinth here. We'll go to another verse and see it anyway. Verse 1, Acts 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them, and because he was the, of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So we find that Paul had another talent. He had something to fall back on, and that was he was a tent maker. Verse 4, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Can you imagine how hard a job that was? The synagogue steeped in the Mosaic Law. And he would go in and say, The Messiah that you've been waiting on all this time has come. And we're no longer under the Mosaic Law. We have a whole new economy that we're working under. Uh, how do you think they took that? They were not good Bereans. And if you are tired from making tents and you go into an atmosphere like that, it is exceedingly difficult, even harder. So he would go to synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So when he had two other co-workers there, 
he decided the responsibility is too great and he's no longer going to stay, uh, continue uh, making tents. Verse 6, And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. Now this is something that instructs us also. He did not beg. He did not conjole. He did everything he could to persuade them. But when they were hard-hearted and negative, it says, he, your blood be upon your own heads. Another thing they used to do was shake the dust off their feet and move on. So there is a time to move on. And this, Paul certainly shows it here. In verse 7, And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And, well, we could go into... I'm just going to stop there. The main thing I want you to see was there was a time when he recognized that he was it was no longer efficient or effective for him to continue to make tents. And that means he had to be supported by someone else. So, so far we have, <clears throat> nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. We have this last phrase now, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul would move into an area for a relatively short time to set up a church. But it takes time for a church to become established enough so that it can support a pastor. This church is a little unusual the way that it began. Most churches have a parent church. And they have a lot of people who are talented, uh, people who are able to help to establish a new church. Many denominations, when another church is, is established, when it's, when it's constructed, there's a lot of people there to help and to do that. Well, this church wasn't that way. It was The circumstances were as such that uh, I was able to, to build the church, had some family members help, but there was no outside organization that, that contributed or helped in any way which is fine. The Lord had designed it to where I was able to do it myself. But I was thinking when I was looking at this in, in the statement I just made, that a, 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 a new church, a small church especially, one like this one, is really, uh, they can't support a pastor full time. And I remember when we were sitting down, uh, no one had ever taught me, no, this is the way that you establish a church. Last thing I ever thought I was going to be was a pastor and everybody else also. So we sit down and we start figuring out, okay, we, if we're going to have a church, we've got to have a budget. Do you know what our budget was per month when this church was established? $200. That's what our budget was. And on $200, it doesn't, doesn't mean that uh, you're, going to be, you're not going to be able to support a pastor's family and all the needs and so forth. And so... This is where Paul was. He went into a new area. He would establish a church. It was brand new. They didn't know how to do everything. They didn't have people that could come in like a denomination and say, okay, this is, this is, this is uh, in some churches they construct the whole church. They even pay for it sometimes. Well, that's not the way this church was established, nor was the one that church, uh, the churches that Paul was establishing. Now, this is... Um, one quote I got from J. Vernon McGee through the Bible commentary. He says, quote, When he, Paul, was establishing churches, he supported himself by tent making. However, after the, church, the churches were established and Paul had come back to visit them a second and third time, he did not receive, excuse me, he did receive an offering from them. He makes it clear to the Galatians that they should give. He thanks the Philippians for their gift. He himself took an offering on his third missionary journey to be given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So I want to make sure that you understand that what Paul is doing here in Thessalonica as well as what he did in Corinth was not the 
standard mode of operation. There were particular extenuating circumstances which called him to do it. There were unscrupulous men pretending to be pastors who took advantage of the goodwill of others by mooching and leeching off of them. And Paul wanted to make sure that he and his friends would not be accused of such a thing. That's some of his motivation for not uh, taking a salary. Paul had critics in Thessalonica who were attempting to convince the church that he was motivated by greed and would say whatever it took to earn human approval and financial support. So by not taking a salary, he nipped all that in the bud. There could be no of his critics None of the Judaizers could come along and accuse him. He's in it just for the money. He's, he's here for your support. Verse 9. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Now, he was being a, not only was he defending his having a defense for his critics who said he's just in it for the money. But he also had those who were not working. Uh, they thought, well, the rapture is going to come any day and we'll just, there's no need to work. We don't have to pay our bills and so forth. Those who communicate the Word of God have the right to be supported financially by those who receive and benefit from their ministry. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine. We're going to go fourteen verses. There's fourteen verses that I want to go through here because you have to go through that many verses to get the feel of what the last three or four verses have to say. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse one. Now Paul is defending himself because he was always assailed and condemned. And he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Question after question there. Now, there's, he says, have I not seen our Lord? We take it from that, that this is the substantiation that he is an apostle, and one of the requirements to be an apostle was to see the resurrected Lord, which he did. And that's something to say because it, he saw him when no one else did. He saw him on the road to Damascus in a unique way. So he's saying, am I not apostle? Do, do I not have all this, this criteria? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See, there were those who were accusing him and demeaning him. He says, even if I'm not to them, I know I am or should be to you because you are my seal of apostleship. In other words, they were the proof that God had given him that spiritual gift because they were believers. They were setting up churches and so forth. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Notice that believing wife, not just a wife. She had to be a believing wife. Even at the re as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, the others, when other apostles had wives. Cephas did. Who is Cephas? That's Peter. You know, I think this is, this is very revealing here in itself because even in the Old Testament, the priests could have wives. In the New Testament, the apostles could have wives. But you don't see that in the largest denomination, I guess you could call it, in the world. There's a certain denomination where priests are not allowed to have wives. And that is not biblical. But it does a lot for the finances that pour into that particular church. You see, if you don't have wives, you don't have children, and there's no one to pass the funds down to. And so I just want to make that in passing, that not in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament were those who communicated the word forbidden to have wives. 
So he's just saying, he's talking about his wives, verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? See, when he's saying, do, not, uh, do we not have a right to eat and drink? He's talking about being supported to eat and drink. And then in verse 6, he's saying, does, evidently Barnabas was on the grill also. Not only are only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also say these things? In other words, he, what he's saying here is this is not just practical, pragmatic examples in life, in society, that would prove that he deserved and was owed a, a compensation for his labor. He's saying these things, the, he's going to go to the Mosaic Law to show it's even in the Mosaic Law that what he's saying is true. Verse 9. Or it is written in the law, for it is written in the law of Moses. And then he quotes, he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle the ox where he is threshing. Do you know what that means? I mean, probably most of you do, but just in case. They used to have, they would take the wheat in and they would have to grind it. And there was usually a big wheel, a stone wheel. It would have a, a rod through it, uh, some kind of pole that would go to a pivotal point. On the other side, you had an ox that would tie to that pole. And as, he, as the ox would go around in a circle, that pole tied to him, as it went across that big round, like a wheel, a big round stone, it would crush all the, the wheat as he went around. And it's saying, that's labor. The, this, this ox had to work to do it. It says, you don't muzzle the ox when he does that. You don't put something on him to keep from going down and eating, eating the grain. In fact, have you ever seen these horses, the carriages, where they would, have, they would strap this thing on a horse and he can eat while he's walking? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you don't take that off of them. You don't, you don't forbid the ox to, to... You don't muzzle him as he's... he's uh, working. And that's part of the Mosaic Law. And then that was in uh, Deuteronomy 25.4. God is not concerned about oxen, is He? Now, God is concerned about everything, but what he, the point He's making here is God has this policy for an animal that if an animal works and deserves to get paid for his labor... Certainly, humans should, should they not? This is what he's saying when, when he uh, says that uh, God is not concerned about oxen. Is He means he's not more concerned for an ox than he is a man. Verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And the answer is yes, he is. This is the point that Paul is bringing out. Yes, for our sake it was written because... The plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. I mean, if you don't have any reward, if you don't have anything for that, then there's no motivation to even do it. Verse 11. If we sowed spiritual things in you, and by the way, that's a first-class conditional clause, meaning, and they did. They did sow spiritual things in, in them, in you. Is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you to do uh, over you, do we not more? In other words, if there's others who deserve to be paid for their labor, he's saying, shouldn't, we, shouldn't that be even more so for us? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we, we endured all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. See, here he is in Corinth, and he's saying, we didn't use this. We worked for ourselves, but he's establishing the fact 
that both in society, common sense, ethics, as well as the Mosaic law, it is right for them to be paid for their labor. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? You know what that's talking about? That's talking about the Old Testament. He's going back to the Old Testament. And, and those who served uh, in the temple, you know, there was always, remember, in the tabernacle as well as the temple, what did they have to do? Every single day, they had to have new bread, uh, new loaves uh, baked, and they would put them in, in the holy place. This is one of the things that they had, and the bread represented the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. And what happened to that bread? Well, the people who were administering in there would eat of that bread. And those who were in the altars, the altar is where the animal was sacrificed. Well, what happened to those animals? Well, a good portion of it went to those who were serving there, those who would take the animal. Listen, this was not an easy job. How would you like to have a job like that? Day after day, you'd take these animals and you'd slit their throat. These animals, oh man, these lambs, (laughs) you rip their throat open and they bleed and then you have to burn them. You have to keep the fire going and you have to clean all this up. They didn't have refrigeration and they didn't have hydraulics where they could take an ox and hook it on him somehow, push a button, lift him up, bring him over here and set him down. They didn't have the electric knives. They didn't have any of these kind of things. This was hard work. And so what his point is, they ate from the service that they they provided. Verse 14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Okay. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we're talking about remuneration here. We're talking about funds. When I come to scriptures in the Bible that has to do with money, I'm going to teach them. But I don't go and teach about money unless the scripture is is dealing with it. I am told by certain pastors, denominational type, that at least every fourth message has to do with money. Wouldn't you get tired of that? Hmm? Is, is every fourth message at least is dealing with money. And I, you know, my, my attitude about, and this church's attitude about money is totally grace-oriented. We don't charge for anything. No publications. The The... DVDs, everything is provided because God makes the provision for us. And this church is a good example that the pastor does not have to make people feel guilty about not giving, doesn't have to go on, doesn't have to dun people with the idea of tithing, and still can flourish because people give because they want to give. They give because they want to see the ministry furthered, be furthered and flourish. Thou their love for the Lord. That's the way it was designed to be. But a lot of churches aren't like that. You can, I've gone into mega churches. I couldn't believe it. They've got, they've got so much money. There's one in Houston. You could take, take this whole church and sit in just the foyer. It's empty. I mean, it's just it's huge. It's tall. And you could just take this church and sit it in there. It's got so much... So much space, I'm thinking, man, this seems like they got to air condition this thing. And there's enough people for half of Brenham to get in there. But anyway, it's a mega church. And then you go in there where the pamphlets are, and they got, you know, 75 cents or 50 cents for this one. I'm thinking, that, I don't know about what pe- other people think, but I think that's offensive. Do they need 75? They need 75 some cents so much for that book? Well, where are we? Second uh, Corinthians uh, 11, verse 7. 
He says, this is Paul speaking, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Now he's talking to the Corinthians, which he did not charge. He did not receive support from them. And he's saying, did I commit a sin by humbling? See, he's saying he humbled himself to do this, that you might be exalted. And then verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. So here in Corinth, uh, I don't know how much of a side job he may have had, but he certainly got support from other churches. Other churches were supporting him in Corinth, which Corinth should have been a church that supported him also. But the, the people were, they were too immature. The, the, the circumstances were such that it would become an issue, so he just did not. Uh, expect them to support him. Verse 9. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone, for when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to, to you and will continue to do so. He had the right, but in those circumstances he... He decided it was best not to. Turn to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. And verse 14. Philippians 4.14. Well, we can't start 14. We've got to go to 13. You can't, you can't start and not include verse 13, can you? <laughs> I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now he goes on and says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed, from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And now look. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So Paul had to be a tent maker and he received gifts from the church in Philippi when he was at Thessalonica. Verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself. Now, this is what I want you to underline, this right here. But I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Underline that. See, people think, well, Paul was getting pretty audacious here. No. He was doing it. Paul didn't care about the money. The Lord was going to provide for him. He could squeeze $100 bills out of rocks if he wants to. But it was for their, the, the profit which increases to your account. God is very mindful of how you spend your money. And when you give sacrificially to support someone like Paul, to support his, the, the, the furtherance of the gospel in a ministry, he says it's to your account. He didn't do it for him. Now that I seek the gift, it's not that I seek the gift itself. I don't, it's not that I'm making an issue out of money, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And, and this has nothing to do with the amount of money given. Zero. It has everything to do with the proper mental attitude in giving. They gave because they wanted to give. And that was, what does he call it? A profit which increases to your account. A profit which increases to your account. What account might that be? Do you think? <laughs> Do you, does it mean that they could go to their bank and, oh, look, what happened? Uh, I got more money than I thought. No. It's talking about your account that cannot rust and that cannot be stolen and will not wither away that is kept for you in heaven. That's the account. You know, 
people that think in terms of everything is now, especially when it comes to money, shame on you. You, you should have got that. I shouldn't even have to tell you that this is talking about the account, not here on earth, but in heaven. But you know what? As you increase that account in heaven, you have all the more abundance of life here on earth. And I'm not talking about necessarily monetarily. But when you have that devotion to the Lord and to those who communicate in a local churches that are doing their job and you do it because you want to, it's always taking note in your account in heaven. And that's no bribe. I'm like Paul. The Lord is going to su supply my needs. But I'm very thankful to Him because this church is not in financial disaster as some are. And it's only because of God's grace and those who are motivated to give. And it's that motivation that, that the people of Country Bible Church has to give is a billion times more important than the amount that they give. Because the money here on this earth, the Bible says, what is, you remember what it says? It's like it takes wings and flies away. I think my wallet, let me see, does it have wings in here? You open it, it's gone. What, what happened? You know what I'm talking about. Where did it go? Not so in this account that it's talking about here. I didn't mean to linger there. He was certainly not implying that his right to receive remuneration for the time and labor involved in teaching the Word should always be sacrificed. He taught elsewhere that it was a legitimate right. It is supposed to be that way. And he gave a... a, a here's the last. I'll give you these two. Well, i got three. Huh? Oh, I did? Okay, thank you. See, I need help. I'm so glad you say something because I go on my way and what I, what I get so often is after church, oh, you skipped 18 and 19. I say, oh, well, thanks. You're just a little late. So, okay, verse 18 and 19. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now this goes back to Old Testament times when they were sacrificing for the right reason, when they were obedient and doing these things, they would say it was a, a, it was a pleasant aroma to God. In fact, that's what the altar of incense that represented the prayers going up. It, it had a special concoction that they had. I'd love to go on into that temple. And just if, even if you blindfold me, let me just smell it. The cedar, the fresh home-baked bread, and the, and the aroma from the incense. I would just be floating around in there even if I couldn't see it. It was something to see. But this is what he is making an allusion to is the, how great that aroma is, giving the right way. And then verse 19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now before I end, and I'm out of time, but I, I need to say this before we come to a conclusion here. The Bible says that we are, and this is in 2 Corinthians 9, that we are to give as we are motivated to give and as we are able to give. And there are people who cannot give. I mean, if, if you are in such uh, financial restrictions that to give to this church is going to put a strain on you uh, taking care of your family, keep it. But what we do want, what the Lord wants, is that motivation to give. Because if you don't have it now, you might have it sometime later. You never know. But that's what he wants is that motivation. You heard of the widow's mite, you know, the little, the, she gave everything she had. It wasn't the amount, it was the motivation to give. So I don't want you to think that you don't have to feel guilty. And in these times, listen, there's a lot of places where the people can't, uh, they can't come up with the funds. But you know what? If people really want to help in a local church, there's a lot of ways they can do it. And uh, there's like that when we first started out, 80% of the people 
are essentially absentee. They come occasionally and they're not plugged in. They're spectators. They're not doing anything in the church. Well, if they don't want to do it, that's between them and the Lord. But for people who especially are, are strapped financially, there's a lot of things you can do. I might not be able to, to afford to give, but I might have a half hour off where I could come down and pull weeds in the church, church's uh, flower beds or whatever it might take. So it's the motivation, and the, that's what the Lord esteems higher than anything. Uh, thank you, Michael, for reminding me of those two verses. We're completely out of time. We'll, we'll continue this next time. Father, we thank you that you own a cattle on a thousand hills and that your grace is always sufficient and that you will supply all our needs according to the riches in glory in our Lord Jesus Christ. What wealth do we have? Whether, regardless of what our bank account is. So we pray that you will help us to have that motivation and that we will utilize our spiritual gifts. And we pray this all in Christ's name.